So for fall break, we surprised our kids with a trip to Disney World. Um, we've been putting it off, waiting for Wade to get a little bit older. And uh, in fact, the past couple of years, we've been taking them to Dollywood. And one time they asked, uh, why can't we go to Disney World? And we said, oh, well, I said, Disney World is fun, but Dollywood is really fun. And um, I said, Disney World is not as good as Dollywood. And so this year, uh, Megan wasn't happy with that, but this year we surprised them with a trip to Disney World, and um, it was fun. Now, the last time I went to Disney, I was 12 years old. <clears throat> that was 27 years ago. Uh, so a lot has changed. Some has not changed. Um, but now, if you're going to go to Disney World, the thing to do is you get a Disney planner. Have you heard of these folks? And a Disney planner is usually somebody who has a very uh, unhealthy relationship with Walt Disney World. Uh, they have been there far too many times over the years, but they tell you where to go, where to stay, how to get a fast pass, uh, uh, where to see the fireworks, how to meet Mickey, and on and on. And so we, uh, we got one of these Disney planners, but here's what they don't tell you. Disney World is not a vacation, okay? Um, it's really not that relaxing. I ran into Abby uh, down there. She was doing the same thing. But on top of that, all five of us came down with the flu at Disney World in the middle of the trip. Uh, that's when the magic dies, when you're, t <laughs> you're tied to the hotel room. <clears throat> but going to Disney World seems to be a rite of passage in American culture, and so it was, it was fun to see uh, the kids light up and to see Wade meet Mickey Mouse. And um, besides getting sick, we did have uh, a lot of fun. Today, we're starting a brand new sermon series called Under Construction, Becoming More Christ-like. If you haven't noticed, our, our building is now under construction. There is a ginormous hole on the south end of our property that's been dug out and blasted out and jackhammered out. We've had a few calls from the neighbors uh, during that time. Um, but just like our building is under construction, I would like to make the case today and in the coming weeks that our lives uh, are also under construction. Um, as Christians, we are all works in progress. We haven't figured it all out. We struggle, we fall short, we miss the mark. But we get up every day and we keep trying to do better, no matter what the previous day uh, had. Um, there are no perfect people in the church. There are no perfect people in any church, even if they want to act like they're perfect. The best part about the Christian community is that we do this together. Um, we don't do it by ourselves. We journey together, we support each other, we encourage each other, we pick each other up when we fall, and that is a very, very good thing. I'm recommending a short little book, and it is short, to go along with this sermon series written by A.J. Sherrill. It's a green book, see, it's not that thick, and it's called Enneagram and the Way of Jesus. You can get this at Spire Books, or you can get this on Amazon, if you've ever heard of Amazon, you can order it there. But here's a quick overview of where we're going to go today and in the coming weeks. Jesus gives us two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Sounds simple, right? But we know that it's not. It's hard. We screw it up all the time. We worship things other than God. We worship status and power, and money, and sports, 
and possessions and politics and political figures, you name it. Part of loving our neighbor as ourselves means that we first have to understand ourselves. And for many of us, we are mysteries to ourselves. Uh, in this series, we're going to talk about the concept of sin. What is sin? How do we understand it? How do we wrestle with it? What does it mean to have a sinful nature? And we're going to use the Enneagram as a tool to help identify the core sins that we wrestle with. Um, every Enneagram number, one through nine, has a core sin. And I think that it's a useful tool in helping us name the things that we need to wrestle with and face on a regular basis. In this series, we will talk specifically about anger and shame and fear and how so much of our energy is dominated by these three basic emotions, anger, shame, and fear. And then lastly in this series, we will acknowledge that discipleship, following Jesus, and spiritual formation is different for every person. Um, one of the things that Cheryl points out in the book is we're all under construction, we're all works in progress, but we all have different challenges because we're all unique. So we need to realize that a one-size-fits-all approach to Christianity does not work. We are unique individuals, and we must recognize that the same thing that, that you have to focus on or you have to focus on might be very different from what I need to focus on or what I need to wrestle with. So in a nutshell, that's where we're going to go between now and Thanksgiving. And at the beginning of this book, Cheryl gives a quote uh, it's actually a David Brooks quote that says this. We live in a society that encourages us to think about how to have a great career, but leaves many of us inarticulate about how to cultivate the inner life. The competition to succeed and win admiration is so fierce that it becomes all-consuming. We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves and to master the skill required for success, but that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation, which are all necessary for building character. Years pass, and the deepest parts of ourselves go unexplored and unstructured. We're busy, but we have a vague anxiety that our lives have not achieved their ultimate meaning and their ultimate significance. So today I'm going to ask you three questions. They're short questions, but not necessarily simple questions, and I'm going to try to give you some answers to that. The first question is this. What is sin? And how do we understand the dualistic nature of human beings? Sin is that which separates us from God. It's our brokenness, our fragility, our imperfection. It's the things that we do that we are not proud of, but that we can't seem to help. Paul famously puts it this way in Romans 7. Justin read these words. I don't understand my own actions. For I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. In other words, there are things that we know we do, but we can't seem to stop doing them. And it's frustrating it's disappointing. It, 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 we can drive ourselves crazy, including our loved ones and spouses crazy. As human beings, we are complicated creatures. God has created us in, in his image, and God has given us the capacity to love others, to care for others, to help others, to serve others. 
but we all know that we have this other side as well. Some call it our shadow side. Sometimes it seems like love and kindness gets pushed aside and anger and resentment and selfishness and jealousy and bitterness and hostility take over. And this isn't the way that we want to be. It's just the way that we sometimes get when certain things happen and when certain circumstances arise in life, when we get stressed out, when we feel like we're under pressure. And all of us, no matter who we are, live with this ongoing tension, this ongoing struggle between the way that God has created us and wants us to be and the way that our sinful nature often causes us to be. We wrestle with this because we are all capable of both extremes. The story that I like to tell to illustrate this is an old Cherokee legend story about a grandfather and a grandson. And the grandson was very angry, very upset with somebody. And his grandfather pulled him aside and he said, grandson, let me tell you something. There is a battle that goes on inside of all of our hearts. I have this battle, you have this battle, every person have this, has this battle. And the battle is between two wolves. One wolf is full of anger and envy and sorrow and regret and greed and arrogance and self-pity and guilt and resentment and inferiority and lies and false pride and ego. But the other wolf is the good wolf. And this wolf is full of joy and peace and love and hope and serenity and humility and kindness and benevolence and empathy and generosity and compassion and faith and love. And grandson, the same fight goes on in your heart, goes on in my heart, goes on in everybody's heart. And the grandson took this in for a minute and he thought about it and he said, well, well, grandfather, which one of the wolves will win? And you remember what he said? He said, the wolf that you feed is the one that will win. And this is true for all of us. The wolf that we decide to feed will win. And the more that we feed that second wolf with love and compassion and kindness and generosity, the better off we're going to be, the more uh, fulfilling our life is going to be, the better we're going to treat other people, the more we will experience fullness of life. Sin is a reality, but we can confront it and we can take it on and we can always do better. Second question this morning. When it comes to being a Christian, a follower of Jesus, how do we know what we need to work on? How do we know where we need to start? For me, this is where the Enneagram is invaluable. I have been an ordained minister for going on 15 years, and until two years ago, I have never found a tool that was more effective at naming the starting point for spiritual growth. The Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system. It goes back 1,600 years, but it wasn't written down until the 1970s, and it's become much more popular in, in recent years. But there are basically nine personality types, and everybody has a number, one through nine, by the time you're five years old. And so here's a quick review. Some of you know this. Some of you, this is new. Type one is the perfectionist ethical, dedicated, and reliable. Ones are motivated by a desire to live the right way, to improve the world, to avoid fault and blame. From the time that they get up until the time that they go to bed, ones see the world rife with errors and they feel a duty to go correct it. Ones are perfectionists. That's why they're, they're focused on perfection and their core sin is anger, which often manifests itself as resentment. Type two is the helper. Warm, caring, and giving. They're motivated by a need 
to be loved and needed, to avoid acknowledging their own needs. Twos are constantly thinking about what they can do to help and serve other people. They are more comfortable giving than receiving, and they often neglect their own needs. The core sin for twos is pride, and they often relish in the myth of their own indispensability. Type three, called the performer, success-oriented, image-conscious, wired for productivity, motivated by a need to be successful and to avoid failure. Threes are doers. They are achievers. Uh, the USA louds threes. Green Hills louds threes. We celebrate them because of all that they can accomplish. But the core sin of threes is deceit. Not that they deceive other people, but that they deceive themselves into thinking that they are what they accomplish in life. Type four, the romantic, creative, sensitive, and moody. They are motivated by a need to be understood, to experience their oversized feelings, and to avoid being ordinary. Fours are unconventional, and they like to be different. Fours think outside of the box, and they often feel lonely and misunderstood. The core sin of fours is envy. And they can envy the normal lives of other people, even though they really don't want that because they know that they're unique. Type fives, the investigator, analytical, detached, and private. They are motivated by a need to gain knowledge, to conserve energy, and to avoid relying on others. Fives are intellectual. They are cerebral. They can also be sarcastic and cynical. And the core sin of fives is avarice or a desire to clinch and protect what little they already have. Type six is the loyalist, committed, practical, witty. They are worst case scenario thinkers who are motivated by fear and the need for security. Sixes are always imagining and planning for the worst case scenarios and they've thought them out in their minds. And sixes, their core sin is fear and also anxiety. Type seven, the enthusiast, fun, spontaneous, adventurous. They are motivated by a need to be happy to plan stimulating experiences and to avoid pain. For sevens, every day is a snow day, fun and games, one adventure after the next. Sevens are full of adventure and they love to have a good time. They are so happy to make last minute plans and to go do something fun. Sevens, their deadly sin or core sin is gluttony, especially as they devour and consume positive experiences. Type eight, that's my number, commanding, intense, called the challenger, Confrontational, they're motivated by a need to be strong and to avoid feeling weak or vulnerable. Eights are often known as leaders and we live with high intensity. Our personalities can be overbearing at times. Eights have a hard time trusting people. You have to first prove that you're trustworthy before an eight will trust you. Eights can overwork, overparty, overeat, overexercise, overspend, over anything. And for eights, if something is worth doing, it's worth doing it to the excess. The core sin of eights is lust, lust for power and control. And lastly, type nine is the peacemaker. Pleasant, laid back, and accommodating, they are motivated by a need to keep the peace, to merge with others, and to avoid conflict. Nines are happy to go along with what other people want to do. They often choose the path of least resistance. They don't want to rock the boat. They don't like confrontation. Nines are always seeking harmony and not conflict, and their deadly sin is sloth or laziness. Now, I share this with you because uh, he talks about it in the book, but I believe that if you can find your number... If you know your number, that will give you a, a head start 
on figuring out your core sin or sins and what you need to work on in your faith journey and in your spiritual life. Because spiritual formation takes effort. It doesn't just happen. You have to be intentional. You have to name your flaws and your sins and you have to confront them and take them on. And I believe that Jesus is calling us to do that so that we can be better disciples. Final question this morning, and this is a good one. What if we're not comfortable admitting our weaknesses? After all, don't we live in a culture that tells us not to show weakness, to be strong, and to act like you have it all together, to pick yourself up and to move forward? If we believe that our lives are under construction, as I'm trying to make the case in this sermon series, and I believe that, then we have to come to terms with our weaknesses, which means we first have to name them so that we can deal with them. We have to own them. We have to be honest about them because if we're going to get help in this journey that we call faith and this journey that we call spiritual growth, we have to realize that we can't do it all on our own. We have to ask God for help. And until we're honest about the fact that we do struggle, that's going to be very, very difficult for us to do, to ask for help from God. So I challenge you in the coming week and really in the coming weeks to spend some time thinking about your number, if you know it, or trying to identify your number if you don't know it, your personality type. Think about the area or the areas where you need to grow in your spiritual life. And remember those words of Jesus from Matthew 7, where he said, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but fail to recognize the log in your own eye? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. You see, if we could move our culture to a place where fewer people pointed at others and blamed them for their own problems... And if more people would take responsibility for the things in their lives that they need to work on and therefore project less, then I'm convinced that our community, our city, our church, our family, all of that would be a far healthier place. And that's part of what we are called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.